This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. So we are just past the midway point of this year's short 60-day legislative session, and I thought it would be a great idea to have an update specifically to talk about a raft of Democratic-sponsored bills that have been scuttled by Democratic leadership and also moderate Democrats. So we want to talk about why this is happening, and specifically some of the things that you can be thinking about and doing in response. So joining us to talk about this are some of our dearest friends here on the show, The Strangers, Rich Smith. Hello to you, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good, good. Uh, also chair of the King County Democrat, Shasti Conrad. Hello to you, my friend. Hello. Good to see you. And then steering committee member of the Washington Indivisible Network, dear friend and producer of this very show, Kat Pipkin. Hello, my friend. How are you? Hey. So listen, you guys, um, before we get started, I do want to just take a quick moment to speak speak about what is happening internationally with Russia having begun its invasion of Ukraine on Wednesday night. Um, It's just kind of an extraordinary development, and it is one that we do plan to cover on the show in the coming weeks. But uh, I thought I would just start by going around and and seeing kind of how each of you is feeling and reacting to these developments, particularly as this would seem to kind of make manifest the fight against authoritarianism across the globe uh, and, and also here at home. Shasti, how is this landing with you? I mean, I think it's certainly scary. Um, And I think it's, you know, we were already on edge and I think it's definitely pushing many of us right on over. Um, And I think that the thing to me that is, you know, obviously it's awful, the thought of war, but the fact that there are Republicans that are cheering on Putin is just horrifying. And I saw um, someone say that, you know, this is really about democracy versus authoritarianism. And that I think is what Putin is trying to sow and, um, all parts of of the world, particularly in the Western world, um, and we we cannot we cannot let that happen, even here at home. So far, I will say that I have been cautiously optimistic about the leadership being shown by by NATO member countries, and they seem to be uh, sticking more closely together in response to Putin's actions, as opposed to being pushed further apart, which I think is what he was hoping for. Rich, what are your thoughts generally? Well, I'm against it. Um, I hope the sanctions don't end up uh, impoverishing or hurting the people of Russia. Uh, and I hope that uh, for a swift diplomatic resolution to the conflict. That is such a boy. And, and I think I feel like often getting lost in all of this are, are the people who are, are most affected here. Kat, what are your thoughts generally? Yeah, echoing Shasti and Rich, I think the initial uh, sanctions are going after the the Russian infrastructure, the banks, the you know uber wealthy, the people who are funding this, not things that are going to impact people directly. I was really pleased to hear that the congressional delegation that went to three different cities last week in Europe um, came back with a renewed resolution to work together uh, with our democratic allies in NATO and to stand firm and to resist authoritarianism here at home. Well, as I say, to be continued, we will be covering this on the show in the coming weeks. Uh, But for today, we are going to talk about four Democratic bills in the state legislature that have been uh, largely undercut by Democrats. The first one we'll start with is one that we've discussed here on the show. This is HB 1727. This is Representative Mia Gregerson's bill. This would get rid of odd year elections in the state. And before we talk about what happened with this bill, Shasti, I want to come back to a conversation that you and I had months and months and months ago uh, to really kind of frame how and why this this bill matters. Why is it a good idea, in your opinion, to get rid of odd year elections? 
Yeah, I mean, this bill was one that I was what I was most passionate about in some ways because I've seen the impact of these odd year elections because we just have to deal with reality. The worst years for turnout have been in odd year elections in the last decade. They've all been in the last several years and they've all been odd years. And in fact, most people often refer to them as off year elections. And we've had to really train people into thinking that no, there no year is off. Every year there is an election, but people are exhausted. And, you know, we, our job is to knock doors and turn people out. And this past cycle, you know, we were doing that and folks kept being like, but I, but I voted last year, you know, but like I voted, did, I have to do it again. And like, I don't understand how does this work? And it's just not fair. And it's, and it's, we, no one can feel great when less than 50% of people are choosing their elected officials. And, you know, that 46% that uh, we got in King County shields smaller cities like um, Sammamish was like 13% turnout. I mean, it, it's just wild. And that, that is not, that's not democracy. That's not yielding um, our best outcome. And so this one was incredibly important and it didn't even get a fair shot. I think um, they didn't even really move it out of committee very much. So very frustrating. Well, we're going to go to Rich. We'll go to you in just a second to talk about what really happened ultimately with this bill on the floor. But Kat, you know, just sort of dovetailing what Shasti is talking about there. You and I have struggled really, really hard to get people excited, particularly in last year's election. And as Shasti said, it was the turnout was as low as ever. What are your thoughts on this bill? Shasti is completely right. It's not good for democracy when less than one in two voters is turning out for an election, right? And let's remember that the real reason that Iman and right-wing groups are mobilizing against bills like this, which make it hard to get through, is because low turnout elections are absolutely the best environment for right-wing ballot measures to pass. Um, you know, if we want to have full participation in democracy, having people engage and actually show up to vote is good for democracy. It's good for us. Structuring things in a way so that the fewer people vote as possible is much better for people who are anti-democracy. So I think, you know, our job is to continue to daylight this. There are some valid reasons, you know, that people are concerned about um, against this bill. Um, against moving to uh, all even year elections. But I will point out that Oregon did it and they didn't significantly increase their undervote count, which is, you know, one of the oft cited reasons for this. There you go. Yeah, it's nice to see an example in real time that, that is actually working on the ground. Um, Rich, certainly your, uh, your, your thoughts and, and opinions on the bill itself, but also uh, enlighten us as to the role that Democrats played in the demise of this bill. Um, uh, I don't know how I feel uh, about the bill. I'm 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 generally uh, pro pro democracy, um, but at the same time, it would weaken my personal influence in elections. So um, <laughs> can't really destroy it, you know. Even if it would be better for everyone else, um, I don't know. The jury's out. Conflict of uh, interest. Yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, I the short answer to why it why it died. Um, was just that the Democrat and what Dem what what Democrats um, could have done was uh, they they just didn't prioritize it uh, ahead of uh, a big Republican filibuster on Sunday uh, before um, the cutoff the next week and so it died with a a number of other bills that we'll talk about this um, during this episode. Uh, I didn't hear a tons from Democrats who didn't like the bill. So if they didn't like the bill, they'd be quiet. I mean, we talked to Jamie Peterson about it. He's the head of the um, 
the Senate's Democratic Campaign Committee, and he was extremely enthusiastic about it. Uh, yeah, the the Association of Counties pushed back against it in um, in, in committee, uh, citing a bunch of logistical issues that might take some time to work out, uh, aligning county charters to match the state law, figuring out how Seattle would do um, its uh, city council races since we stagger them every couple years. Maybe that turned off uh, some people, but um, otherwise, I just think that it was a lack of, um, of prioritization uh, on the on the part of the caucus. And this bill is definitely dead for the session. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to some actions at the end of the program here. We'll save those for last, but I, I will move on to 1806. And then this one, this uh, regards unionization by legislative staff. Uh, and this was the cause of a lot of anger, a lot of tweets, even a sick out uh, when the bill went down. And now there's apparently a new bill uh, in the works to replace it, H.R. 2124. And we'll get to that in a second. But Rich, just very briefly, tell us about 1806 and specifically what it would have, have done. Yeah, well, uh, so state law authorizes a number of public employees to unionize, such as teachers, assistant attorneys general, uh, other members of, uh, of state government, but not people who work in the legislative agencies. Um, those people include legislative aides, comm staffers, the place that makes it, you know, the, the people that make the place run. Uh, also includes nonpartisan staff, people who literally load the bills into the system, the people who draw up revenue projections, et cetera. And so HB uh, 1806 would have uh, simply removed the prohibition, preventing them from uh, collective bargaining. Uh, and it would have named who their boss would have been, you know, the person who they would have to negotiate uh, with and, uh, and said that they could uh, bargain over uh, wages and working conditions. This is, I mean, it seems like such a slam dunk. And Chastity, I really want to get your thoughts on this in just a second. But just briefly, Rich, tell us why 1806 went down, as far as you could tell. Ultimately, uh, House Democratic leadership, which includes Speaker Lori Jenkins and Majority Leader Pat Sullivan, um, didn't think the bill was ready to go this year. I tried to ask um, Leader Sullivan who else <laughs> uh, in the cohort and leadership uh, didn't think the bill was ready to go, uh, but he wouldn't throw anybody else uh, under the bus. And the the logic that they employed to support their point was indistinguishable from the logic that every boss has ever used to slow down or stop any unionization effort um, over in the history of uni unionization efforts, right? Our industry is so complex. We need to be super careful about who's in the bargaining unit and who's not in the bargaining unit. No state has ever done this. It's actually, we're trailblazing. It's impossible to even imagine this, you know, We've been thinking about this for so long. No one's actually done it. And oh my God, I'm hungry for a bagel. You know, it's like that sort of <laughs> that sort of stuff. Uh, but then, you know, you poke, poke them a little bit and then substantively they'll say stuff like, well, they're hearing from workers in some of these agencies that were included uh, in the collective bargaining unit who had concerns. Uh, IUPAT, the uh, the labor union that they would be organizing with, is maybe a little too lefty. Um, Nonpartisan staff don't want to appear partisan by being a member of a union because being a member of the union codes Democrat, and they fiercely hold their nonpartisanship. Um, you know, they don't, they, yeah, it's a concern of theirs. 
so say these lawmakers. Um, and then there were some timeline considerations also. 1806 would have allowed the legislative workers to start negotiating their contract during a year when most other public employees don't negotiate their contract, but then it would have got them back in step later. So there was, you know, they they pointed to these issues, all of which I think you could, I don't know for certain, but I think you could probably handle with like in an afternoon, (laughs) you know, with, 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 with a few amendments. So that, that's the, that's the, that's the list of, that's what I was able to squeeze out of them. Well, I mean, it's still a head scratching issue. And, and Shasti, as, as I was I was mentioning, this seems like it would be a slam dunk for Democrats, right? Democrats are pro-union. In fact, it seems more controversial to vote against something that would be pro-unionization. What do you think was was behind uh, the Democrats moving to school? In particular, uh, I will ask you about Speaker Jenkins, because she's now one of the people who's behind 2020, uh, 21-24 to replace this bill. What do you think is going on here? Yes. I am full of rage and have been for the last (laughs) two weeks on this one, because like you said, is a slam dunk for us. Like labor is one of the biggest parts of our coalition. And to, we, we talk about being pro union in every election cycle and everything we do. And then we turn around and we say, but not, not us, like not our staff, you know, not, not what happens here in Olympia, like that, that no, you know, we're not going to stand for that. And that I, you know, a head scratcher is like, just the, like, that's, that's being polite. Right. It's like what Rich was saying. It's, it, it is exactly the sort of delay tactics that you heard like Amazon using, you know, it's just sort of like, what are we doing here? If we're not going to stand up for our own workers and clean up our own house, what, like what we, we have no moral high ground on this. And it just seems like you know, for all the other things, which I know we're going to talk about, that they worry about how it's going to impact the election. And they're, you know, a lot of these incumbents getting reelected. This is one where I'm like, just get it done. Um, It's incredibly upsetting and frustrating. And I know that, um, you know, many of the staff have been working on this for years. And this was the best opportunity to get it done. And, you know, uh, I would love Rich to maybe talk a little bit more about 2124, because I think that is another one where it's just like it's just full of delay tactics. Um, well, d- yeah, actually, you read my mind, Rich. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the replacement bill. And in particular, I would love to know why you thought that uh, Speaker Jenkins and, 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 and some other folks thought that it was a good idea for them to reintroduce it in this session after 1806 went down. What, what are your insights there? I think that the the sick out was, you know, to, to, to hit the last question for, I think that the sick out, you know, after the sick out happened, um, the bill sponsor, a uh, prime sponsor, Marcus Riccelli out of Spokane, you know, woke up the next day and said, we got to do something, <laughs> you know, like we got to, we have to get something done uh, this year. And so he met with the the, the problems and, and tried to bang out um, a compromise bill that they could act on. And that's actually getting a hearing in House Appropriations uh, in five minutes. Uh, it's it's one twenty five as we record this here. And so it's uh, it's getting a hearing at, at one thirty. Um, but so that that was you know, what Richelli told me happened um, uh, uh, to prompt this bill. Um, and yeah, this um, this one, um, you know, like a lot of compromises, it doesn't make uh, doesn't make anybody happy. Uh, it pushes back the timeline for when um, that prohibition on unionizing 
will be lifted by a year. So they wouldn't be able to have a, a contract until um, uh, 2025. Uh, you mentioned this in an article. Why, why the long runway? Did they give you a reason for that? It's, it's just about aligning it or not aligning it with other public employees who do their contract, who negotiate their contracts. So all public state public employees negotiate their contracts on even numbered years so that they align. The legislature can approve pay raises or whatever during that biennium. Uh, so, you know, legislature. It's kind of a bureaucratic reason. <laughs> it's a, yes, yes, it is a bureaucratic. I get technically they could say you could start bargaining now, you know, like they're, sure. they're People are bargaining right now for their for their contracts um, for the next session, and uh, they could maybe maybe slip it in there. Um, but so it, the next time that they would be able to do that would be uh, 2024. Yeah, so for the for the following biennium. Yeah, Kat, you and I work a lot with legislative assistants, um, and uh, I I know where my heart is on this. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, you know, last night we were talking about this, Rich, and thinking about it. I mean, the cynical part of me, uh, which prompted me to reach out to some folks last night, said, oh, this is, they're just, you know, they, they're freaking out because of the sick out. They're just trying to placate everybody to get through the session. Um, but my test group of one, and then I was able to reach last night, said, you know, in general, um, LAs are pretty happy with it. They are would be grateful for anything at this point, having been working on this for more than a decade. Um, they're not happy with the timeline. So maybe we could amend that uh, to address that timeline, but it's better than nothing. I, I was just speaking of the appropriations hearing. I was just looking at who signed in last, you know, as of last night, everybody was pro. It was all unions and they were all pro. We've got some familiar faces, uh, you know, all the same people who are trying to undermine public education and, and government and, you know, anti-union are signing in con now, right? Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly people are signing in pro. So I think the, at least the public sentiment for this is to, oh my God, for, you know, FFS, could we get something done? That would be great. You know, can we please provide some protection to these staff members, yeah. even though it's um, in ideal and imperfect? I, I think it's a little bit darker than that too, which is it's like, I think that they are they are covering up for personality issues and, and turf wars that are happening. It is about like their labor is mostly for it, but there's been battles about which labor union would be the union that would, um, that would be assigned to um, representing um, the staff. There are concerns, you know, it's been mostly pinned to Speaker Jenkins and to Pat Sullivan. But it's a well, pretty well-known secret that Sullivan is likely not running. And so he is standing in because he will not have to pay the price in, um, to try to be reelected on this. And so they're allowing him to sort of take that. Now, I do think that it is mostly on um, Speaker Jenkins' shoulders in this one. But I also think that there are some other people that are very worried about being held accountable for the ways in which they treat staff. And I think they're worried about there being any sort of retroactive accountability for the ways in which they treat staff. And that includes uh, things related to harassment um, and sort of code of conduct violations and things like that. So I do think that is a part of it. And I normally would keep my mouth shut on this, but I'm so angry that this is where they've put us, that it is time to just say like, it's not okay. And and Kat, I think uh, the, the legislative assistants are so desperate for anything because they've been working so hard to get to this point that you're right, they're willing to take 21, 24, but it is not a good bill. 
Rich, any uh, follow-up thoughts on that? Just to support uh, a point that uh, Shasti mentioned, yeah, I, I I had heard in my discussions with lawmakers that you know if this was just uh, uh, um, a bill that would cover a legislative aid and, and com staff and only about wages, this would have passed in no problem. There, 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 there is the, that 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 um, having a broad a broader um, collective bargaining unit and having them also. Um, be able to uh, bargain over workplace, um, yeah, harassment issues, uh, working conditions that are not related to wages was, you know, ma- ma- made it a little bit more difficult of a bill to pass. So that's, uh, yeah, that's supported. Sort of taking everything that we are talking about here in terms of what Democrats putatively stand for and what they actually are willing to do and tolerate. I want to end up on two bills that are still very much alive right now. One is 2037, and this would roll back a lot of the advances made in last year's session on the use of police force. This has been very controversial, not least of which is because it's sponsored by Public Safety Chair Representative Roger Goodman, who spearheaded a number of bills last year that curbed police use of force. And also 2037 is supported by Jesse Johnson, Representative Jesse Johnson, who was the lead sponsor of 1310, which, among other things, forbids police officers from using force to detain someone unless they have enough evidence to arrest them. Uh, Rich, before we get to why this bill was uh, even introduced in the first place, what specifically does 2037 do? Yeah, 2037, uh, the last version of it that I saw um, w- allows cops to use force on people who are in- intentionally try to flee uh, Terry stops. Uh, these are uh, brief investigatory stops based on an evidentiary standard called reasonable suspicion. So um, that means that if a cop uh, suspects you of having maybe uh, committed a crime or involved in maybe committing a crime, or maybe you're about to commit a crime, then they can stop you from walking down the street and, uh, or driving down the road and this bill. And if you run from them, when they try to stop you, uh, under this bill, they could use uh, physical force to, to stop you and keep you there, bonk you over the head or whatever. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm moved to ask a very dumb question, which is, isn't this precisely the scenario in which most police shootings and abusive power happens? Uh, yeah, the, the people who um, uh, spoke to uh, to the bill and testimony, including you know, Dre McKesson, who runs Campaign Zero, as well as um, uh, families uh, who, uh, who are who've survivors of, uh, of police uh, violence, said this bill just opens the door for physical force to become deadly force. Uh, a number of cases um, uh, where uh, cops, you know, uh, where you know a, a lot of black people have been shot and killed by police officers involved them fleeing uh, cops uh, rightfully because they're scared if they engage with a cop um, they'll be killed and uh, there's uh, a long uh, bloody and tragic list to support that uh, concern um, and um, and that's the debate right now. Rich, I know that you also did some reporting on Senate Bill 5919, another bill that I I wanted to mention in our discussion here. I believe that that has largely been combined with this House bill. uh, But it's my understanding that as you reported on it, 5919 would address some of the same things, which it it would allow physical force, police to use physical force based on reasonable suspicions. That seems to cover a lot of the same ground. Are there any other uh, things worth noting about 5919? 
just that it it uh, it's it allows them to to hit people during the whole Terry stop. So the the twenty thirty seven uh, just covers fleeing one, uh, so uh, intentionally fleeing one. So fifty nine nineteen would allow the cop to effect a Terry stop and use physical force to do so if they had reasonable suspicion that the person had just uh, committed a crime or planned to to, <clears throat> to commit a crime commit a crime again low level crimes trespassing stuff that you know gets thrown out uh, as a matter of course in, in misdemeanor courts on occasion and it's it's also my understanding that physical force as defined in this law um, is understood by police to mean uh, it it either inflicts injury or uh, some sort of, of of severe bodily harm cat you had something you wanted to add to that well i just wanted to add that there have been a couple of really um clarifying amendments, including some that were withdrawn at the request of the speaker, which makes no sense to me, um, in that the current law is doesn't ban temporary investigative detentions or Terry stops. And the p- police officers already have the authority to use physical force. All this does is, it, uh, particularly in the case of 2037, is clarify when uh, you you can use that force and also make it clear that you have to inform somebody that they're being detained. Like right now, somebody might flee because they don't know what's going on. Um, if you, you know, so these really reasonable amendments are actually even being tossed out. And I don't know what this fear is that is driving our delegation right now, but even very reasonable amendments are being withdrawn. Let's ask Shasti, because I know that she has a lot to say on the matter here. Shasti, you know, and you've been talking about this uh, already, but let's really go big picture here. This and others, the, the other bills that we've discussed, why are these bills advancing and or being rolled back with so much Democratic support, in your, in, in your opinion? Well, I know I, on this one, the sort of, you know, word was that cops weren't willing to engage and carry out their sort of public safety duties because there was the law was unclear and it was confusing and that was why but i actually think i mean that may be part of it but i think really what it is is that there were you know more sort of purple red districts that you know democrats were very worried that this was going to impact their election and they don't want they don't anything that's connected to defund the police, anything that's connected to, you know, challenging on public safety. They are very afraid that it is going to backfire and it's going to mean that these incumbents are going to lose their seats or they're getting challenged by the left. And, you know, this is just like they just don't want to touch it. They don't want to deal with it. And I think that is honestly what is happening on a lot of these bills is, and I've heard this, I've heard this now where I, I spoke to a congressional staffer um, last year who was like, you know, well, we only have the first few months of the first year after an election because then it's the next year's an election year and nothing is going to be able to get done. And that's happening in the state legislature this year too. You hear it all of the time. And, you know, it's like majorities matter. We do the work as Democrats in turning out the vote getting people elected so that they we have the majority so that we can get big things done and it's incredibly frustrating to get to this point and to see so much good that would help people not happening because they're blaming it on elections and needing to get reelected 
Well, I'll just ask you bluntly because I, I know that uh, certainly people who are you know opposing and or supporting a lot of these bills that we've talked about uh, today um, are concerned about losing legislative majorities in this year's election. Are you concerned about that? I'm not. I mean, I think like I am. I, I wasn't. I am now because it is so much. It's going to be so much harder to sell. Hey, this is what Democrats do when we're in power. You know, trust us. You know, you. I mean, you know, like Stefan and Kat. Like we hit these doors and we talk to people over and over again, and we say, like, just you know, just trust in progressives. We will get this done. We believe in democracy. We're going to deliver for you. And then when we get power and we shy away from it and we don't do it and we don't deliver and we don't have anything that we can sort of hang our hats on, people disengage and they don't believe us. And I think problem is that what we've seen is Trump and the Republicans are so horrible, but people feel like something is happening when they are in power. And that need for a sense of motion and not just status quo that overrides their sense of whether or not it's actually helping them. And that's why this is so frustrating. I mean, I also, the bigger thing I think is like these short sessions to try to get all of these things solved in, you know, like 60 days, it's just next to impossible. And it, I think, you know, the bigger thing is like, we probably need an all year round state legislature and it needs to be funded better so that we can get different types of folks who can fully participate in their jobs and help people. Kat and Rich, I want to go to both of you for uh, just your thoughts on what what Shasti just said as we wrap up here. Um, Kat, um, you know, we work very hard, as Shasti said, to get people elected so that they can do this kind of work. What are your thoughts about this? Uh, I don't know. There's a, there's, there's a general pervasive fear that, you know, if you come out too strongly in favor of some of these bills, that you're going to be risking your job potentially as a, as a legislator and then also risking the majority. How do you how do you land on this? really wondering who they're listening to because this messaging makes no sense to me. You're not going to win over Republican voters through this. You took the vote last year. You're just distancing yourself from your base this year. So you're pissing off everybody who is uh, the people who are out there knocking on doors for you. And the persuadables, they're like, really? What is this about? You're not persuading anybody. All you're doing is, you know, these guys are still going to hate you. These guys are now mad at you. We're not just, you know, we're not showing that we can govern well. And I, you know, I find this, um, I think, Shasta, you called it running away from. I think running away from real issues is a, is a critical mistake. And I'm, I'm frankly, I'm really disappointed in my legislators for supporting this. Rich, I'll just ask you generally. I mean, you, you cover this stuff really intricately. What, what are your thoughts generally about this, this very dynamic that we're discussing between being afraid of, of really putting forth some bold legislation and uh, potentially paying a price at the ballot box if you do? Yeah, two things. I don't know. I In general, I, I think that lawmakers are too worried about um, 
because they're not used to it, uh, expressing their concerns about legislation in public and having the conversation in public, like (laughs) through the media, like, you know, as discussion, you know, most of these, like, uh, what do you think about the bill stuff? It all happens behind closed doors. And then they do a little play for us uh, on uh, on the house in the committees and, 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 and on the floors. And so they're, I think just by, you know, structurally nervous uh to um to just to, to to admit that they have opinions admit that their their ideas can change or you know like whatever and, and i think that it's um so there's yeah so that that's one kind of issue um in general i think that they're probably uh uh i mean in terms of what they're going to bring voters when they go knocking on the doors uh, they're going to be relying on um, the huge transportation package, the $16 billion transportation package that they're finally gonna get over the, um, the threshold this year, sort of reflecting the, um, that national uh, democratic strategy of getting the infrastructure package through so um, that they can point to, um, you know, we're gonna glue the bridges back together and we're gonna widen this road. And, you know, it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pork barrel spending in there. That said, I, I, I don't know if um, some of the, the the big line items in those bills are, are really kind of going to places that will help Democrat where Democrats are in trouble. So, you know, for instance, the the widening uh, Highway 18 that's in Mullet's district, he just won re-election. Uh, you know, the 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 bridge crossing, uh, the I-5 bridge crossing that's in Annette Cleveland's district, she just won her uh, re-election. She's not, you know, she's not in trouble. A lot, a lot of the big, t- you know, uh, Hobbs, you know, the Highway 2 trestle, like, you know, that that's not going to be a problem for Democrats. A lot of the stuff in the bill is for Democrats who are who are safe. So I, I, um, uh, I, I I don't know if that's going to be a successful strategy. I don't know if it'll be a successful successful strategy nationally either, uh, particularly because a lot of these projects aren't shovel ready, right? I mean, they're not they're not going to be. Some of them are backfilling stuff that's already happening, but um, but it's not like you know next month a bunch of um, uh, uh, purple district dams are going to be standing on tops of fresh mounds of dirt with shuttle cutting ribbons and stuff like that, talking about these great new infrastructure projects. So um, yeah. that's what that's my guess as to what they're going to be running on, and uh, and also the the sort of uh, cap and trade bills and stuff that a- allowed um, um, the the bill to finally get over the finish line financially. Would that we could get some photo ops of folks with shovels in their hands uh, ready to start some of these projects and would that those projects actually move the needles, uh, the needle for voters. Kat, this is something I know we're going to explore in depth as we move into election season this year. So, of course, stay tuned for that, gang. Um, let's close on this. As I said that we would, I want to get some some calls to action generally. I know that there aren't a lot of specific calls to action for any of the bills that we discussed here, but there are some very, very general ones. And I think these are ones that we can sink our teeth into. Kat, I'll start with you. All right. First thing first, I think if we have timid legislators who are already in office, one of the ways we can exert pressure on them is by giving them a platform that embodies our priorities. That will make a difference. And one of the the best way of doing that is by running as a delegate in your legislative district and going to the convention and pushing for your priorities. You may or may not get it through, but to the degree that our state platform embodies what we want, then that, first of all, it gives them cover, but it also applies pressure on our legislators uh, to enact legislation in the way that we believe it needs to be enacted. 
to your specific question in terms of what we can still affect, I think that there are a host of good government bills that we can still see through to passage. And we can drop them all in the show notes, but I'll just um, drop a couple of titles here, 1630 weapons in specific locations, such as at school board meetings and in election places, 1769 community councils is still alive. We want to get rid of those horribly, horribly, horribly anti-democratic. There's only two of them in the state. One of them is in my backyard. Uh, Get rid of those. Uh, It's, and as we pointed out earlier, it's amazing how your principles go out the window when it's your backyard. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1876, Ballot measures disclosures, um, you know, we need the facts on ballot measures so that we can accurately vote on them. 5597 voting rights, that's still very much alive, and we definitely want this. Uh, 5793 stipends for boards and commissions, which will help encourage more diversity in public service. And SJM 8006, a national infrastructure bank, would also be pretty helpful. The, those are a, there are a number of things that have been covered here on the on the program over the the last year or so, and I will uh, be providing links to those episodes where applicable. Shasti, I'm going to give you the last word here. Um, certainly, I'd be interested in knowing what the state democratic orgs are doing in response, because I know that you and others are angry. But I would also like you to end, if you would, on what you would like to see the rank and file uh, activists who watch uh, this this program. What you'd like to see us doing? Definitely. I mean, I you know. Uh, session ends. Um, we are in an election season, and so many of these incumbents are going to be coming to visit our organizations and asking for our endorsement. And, you know, I think a lot of times we tend to just say, like, okay, we like you. That's great. You know, you're endorsed. We'll support you again. And I think, you know, this session has shown we've got to ask some more questions and we need to push and say what happened. And these are, you know, Kat was talking about the platform. Like we actually need to hold them accountable to, to a progressive platform and say, you know, you don't just get a blanket stamp of like, Hey, you did it last year. So you, you just get to walk through this. If you're not going to actually represent the district and, and help people, then we'll find somebody else, you know? And I think that, uh, for too long, there's been this sort of gatekeeping around just giving people a pass, thinking once they're in power that they're not actually respond. They don't need to be responsive to the folks who elect them. And we have to just stay on them. And I think for activists, you have to stay engaged. You have to keep, we have to keep asking these hard questions. We've got to keep pushing and not just sort of feel like, all right, we get them elected and it's done. Um, Unfortunately, I would love to be able to take the break too, but we have to stay engaged and keep fighting for this because, you know, even when we have the majorities, it doesn't necessarily yield um, the benefits that we would hope. And so we've got to just keep holding people's feet to the fire and doing the work. And remembering, though, at the same time, I say all that these are, you know, family fights in some ways. And at least our side believes in democracy. You know, we started the conversation around U- Ukraine and Russia. And at least, you know, our, our side still are folks that we can hold their feet to the fire. And, you know, that's why I still believe in the value of a democratic party and in supporting good progressives. And honestly, who would have thought that in this country, in this day and age, that just a bedrock belief in democracy would be table stakes. Uh, and Rich, certainly just dovetailing, I'm, I'm going to give you the final word. Um, what Shasti was talking about in terms of holding these uh, these elected officials to account is really exactly what the Strangers Voter Guide is all about, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, the, <laughs> the Strangers uh, Voter Guide is, is all about um, uh 
uh, holding these people to account. They come in, they say they're going to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, we're in a housing crisis. And so, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to address it. And then two years later, sometimes four years later, they come back and we say, oh, I see you did not um, <laughs> crisis, uh, with this vote. Or, you know, I see you did not do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, we'll, you know, we... We decide um, whether or not we support them uh, based on um, based on their service, <laughs> uh, whether or not they uh, they live their values, as they say. Um, and so, yeah, to the extent that our, our endorsement moves uh, any needles, um, uh, it'll it'll come into play uh, in, in some of these races. Well, my friends, I thank each of you for your time, your perspective, your passion, your work, all of it. Uh, Rich Smith, thank you. Shasti Conrad, thank you. And of course, Kat Pipkin. Thank you, my friend. Thanks all. And that'll do it for this week's show. Our executive producer is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video of this or any of our productions, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at indivisible pod. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.